Some bonds last a lifetime. Some bonds inspire confidence. And some you grow to rely on. These are the bonds worth investing in. For nearly 50 years, PIMCO has reinvented fixed income to create opportunities for investors in every market environment. So no matter what happens, you can build the bonds that mean the most to you. PIMCO, a global leader in active fixed income. Learn more at PIMCO.com bonds. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Consult your investment professional before investing. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the... CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC. Playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. I'll be able to make friends with trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. You may think the stock market is built on the foundation of logic, but you'd be wrong. Investing in stocks is by nature a leap of faith. Think about it. These are pieces of paper. Their value goes up or down based on what you believe about the future. In short, the market is an agglomeration of thousands of leaps of faith. And on a day like today, where the Dow dipped 45 points, the S&P inched down 0.03%, and the Nasdaq advanced 0.06%, it's worth pondering who deserves that faith. Which companies are being given the benefit of the doubt that don't deserve it, and vice versa? I'm going to start positive. Last night, Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, told an amazing story. The slate of upcoming movies, blockbuster after blockbuster. Theme parks, well, the theme parks, they are firing on all cylinders. Programming, killer. His vision for merging with the Fox properties, to me, it looks like it could have growth as far as the eye can see. How about ESPN? Okay, here's where the rubber hits the road. Iger told us that ESPN Plus, their online streaming offering, is doing better than expected. But then he didn't share what the expectations actually were. He basically said, take my word for it. I am actually happy to take his word for it. Is there any reason not to? Wasn't Iger the one who first flagged ESPN's problems with cord cutting? Wasn't he upfront about the need to do something? Hasn't he taken radical action to create value for shareholders? Yet the stock's down today. And that means one of two things. Either Disney stock had run too much into the quarter. It was up from 100 at the beginning of June to 116 going into the quarter. Or Bob Iger isn't being given the benefit of the doubt. And that's where the opportunity comes in. If you can afford to take a long-term view, why not have some faith that all these moving parts are going to come together over the next few years and give this iconic entertainment company some credit? Bob Iger didn't just fall off a turnip truck. And while Netflix has a lead on them when it comes to the streaming stuff, I mean, who says it's zero sum? You got plenty of other players in the space, like Amazon, YouTube, Apple, but why not Disney? On the other hand, let's shift away from Disney and talk about Tesla. 
Now, I'm going to have a lot about this one later in the show. But this morning, my Squawk on the Street partner, David Faber, made it clear that not one of his myriad contacts gives any credibility to the idea that an $80 billion management-led buyout of Tesla is possible given how much money the company is losing. Essentially, we're putting too much faith in Elon Musk. Sure, he makes a great car. He's a visionary. It's still kind of crazy to think he can put together the financing for this deal. Now let's talk about a potential merger that's created a chasm between the believers and the non-believers. The acquisition of Express Scripts, the pharmacy benefit manager, by Cigna, a deal that could hang in the balance because Carl Icahn, the iconic activist investor, has no faith in the merger. Look, Icahn admitted when he talked today that he probably can't block the transaction. He accepts that the shareholder is going to approve it. But he took the extraordinary step of actually using a scatological term to describe the deal itself. Normally, he only use that kind of language publicly when he's arguing with guys like Bill Ackman. Icon thinks the combination is totally wrong because Cigna is paying way too much for Express Scripts. He also questioned whether antitrust issues could nullify the deal. I have to admit that I, too, was skeptical about the transaction and thought it was going to hold back Cigna's stock. I still believe Cigna shares would be higher than they are right now if the company weren't making the bid. That said, we had Cigna CEO David Cordani on the show in March, and he convinced me that the deal will give his company much better data, allowing them to reach far more customers. And I came away thinking that longer term, not right now, but longer term, the combination could be fantastic. And Cigna's merger with Express Scripts will produce a much higher stock price than an independent Cigna would down the road. Not today, but down the road. Now, unlike Carl Icahn, who pretty much questioned Cordani's san- sanity, or at least that seemed like the implication from his comments, I care about how Cigna's performed under Cordani. What's his leadership been? And the answer is much better than the market. More important, I look at the data business created by United Health. That's the stock we own for my charitable trust. And you can follow along by joining the ActionAlertsPlus.com club. And it makes me think that someday Cigna could be at a huge disadvantage without Express Scripts. This deal gives them the ability to compete with the juggernaut that is UNH. In short, I'm taking a leap of faith that Cordani knows what he's doing. There's no reason for him doing this deal if he doesn't believe in it. I think the combination is terrific, which is why I've been recommending his stock since $170. It's now $189. Let me give you one more. The conventional wisdom in this business is that if you're going up against Amazon, you're pretty much finished. You're roadkill. You're just going to be trashed, and your stock will become a joke. We've seen this play out time after time with so many different retailers. That's why we call Amazon the Death Star. But you know what? Sometimes Amazon doesn't get its man. There was a time when we believed Amazon was going to crush the auto parts retailers. Last year, we kept hearing how Amazon could send these auto parts chains into Chapter 11 by just looking at them. AutoZone is a terrific retailer. It saw its stock plummet from $800 to below $500, almost in a straight line through most of 2017. And that was strictly, I think, because of the threat from the Death Star. The numbers weren't that bad. It's the Death Star. Well, guess what? The big calamity had never materialized. Now the darn thing is back at $732, and I bet it can still go higher. We overestimated the prowess of Amazon in the auto parts space, and we underestimated the power of autism. What else? This morning, CBS reported the drugstore chain. Okay, not Channel 2. Well, at least locally. And you can see that nobody's given these guys the benefit of the doubt in ages, at least until today. This morning, CBS reported a much better than expected quarter. It was a real barn burner. The stock flew up 4% in response. Now, CBS is about to merge with Aetna, another health insurer like Cigna and UNH. And I had been worried that Amazon could make this combination mighty unattractive. Again, though, after today, I think we've given Amazon too much credit 
and CVS too little. As powerful as the Death Star may be, it can't wipe out a whole industry overnight. Plus, the quarter opened my eyes to the fact that the CVS Aetna deal could be a wellness killer to put it in the most oxymoronic terms possible. Sure, you have to be concerned about Amazon, particularly its venture with Berkshire Hathaway and J.P. Morgan to rein in healthcare costs. That said, I really don't think CVS and Aetna are the problem when it comes to runaway costs in this business. In fact, maybe they're part of the solution, which is one reason why CVS's excellent CEO, Larry Merlot, wants to buy Aetna in the first place. So here's the bottom line. Investing is about knowing not just what to believe, but who to believe. That's why you've got to have faith in Disney, Cigna, and CVS. But others, like Elon Musk, may deserve a bit more, let's say, circumspection, maybe some skepticism. At the end of the day, stocks are predicated on faith, but they still have empirical underpinnings. The stocks I just recommended, I expect them to be higher a year from now, in part because I trust the people running the underlying companies. Don in Massachusetts. Don! Hi, Jim. How you doing? I'm doing well, Don. How about you? I'm doing fine, thanks. Okay, Jim. The stock I'm interested in is TCS, the Container Store. The Container Store is a one-stop shop for finding ways to create more space through clever organization. The company experienced the post-IPO blues. <laughs> oh, yeah. In 2017 put together two consecutive quarters of growth and profitability, and its most recent quarter was great. Yeah, it was. You know, and I've got to tell you, there are a lot of still shorts in the name, but I've been waiting for them to deliver numbers. I have been very, very negative on this stock for years. Thank you to my late pop for telling me that it was a real awful place, But they, because he sold gift wrap for a living. But I've got to tell you, now I think it is okay, and you're dead right. People have to start paying t- attention to it. That was a good last quarter. How about Michael in New York? Michael! Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Oh, you bet. You've got a great staff and a really entertaining show. Appreciate oh, it. Oh, thank you. Staff is fabulous. What's up? Hey, I got a question on SodaStream International. Uh, stock is up fo- over 40% in a month and over 106% in a year. Their last earnings call was the best in the company's history, and they also raised guidance. Well, you know what? I got to tell you, whenever uh, this was Zeb Fimo, he works with me at ActionLearnersPlus.com, uh, the club where we're doing our conference call tomorrow at 1130. I got to tell you, he said this was the best beat, the best beat that he's seen, and I got to admit, it was incredible. But that said, I would tell you that you had to be in it before the beat. The stock has just went up 30 points. Uh, maybe we just have to wait for this one to come down. All right. I want you to have a little faith. Have a little faith, will you? It may be time to ask yourself why you're giving Elon Musk the benefit of the doubt, but not stocks like Disney, Cigna, or CVS. Oh, man, tonight I'm sounding off on Sonos after last week's IPO and telling you if I like what I hear. Then the rumble for runway dominance between CarMax and AutoNation continues. Forget Grease like it. I'll tell you which stock is automatic, systematic, and hydromatic. And just call Elon Musk David Blaine. I'm eyeing the incredible match trick he's attempting to pull off. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com. Or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com.
Since 2002, this company has been connecting the home to the sounds consumers crave. After an IPO, will the smart speakers of Sonos be a smart investment? Whenever a company comes public with a recognizable brand that many of you are probably familiar with, I like to play a little game called Know Your IPO, where we try to figure out whether a business with a good product also has a good stock. The truth is these are two very different things in a lot of different cases. So what do we make of Sonos, the maker of smart home sound systems that came public to great fanfare just last week, even as the deal's actual reception was kind of mixed? Before we get into stock, though, let's talk about what Sonos does, because I know we got a lot of aspiring Luddites in the audience. Google it. These guys make wireless speakers, home theater speakers, and all sorts of related components. A little less than a year ago, they launched Sonos One, their first voice-enabled wireless smart speaker with Amazon's Alexa built right in. Then last month, they rolled out the Sonos Beam, a voice-controlled home theater sound system. You might think this stuff is totally commoditized, but get this, Sonos has more than 630 patents, 570 more pending. This is a system for audio snobs, like Bose. Hey, call me a snob, I have both. Even as I'm not enough of an audiophile to really tell the difference. But one of Sonos' selling points is that their platform works seamlessly with far more streaming services than Bose does. I'm agnostic between them. And hey, Sonos is pretty popular. As of the end of March, they had 19 million products registered in nearly 7 million households around the globe. A ton of repeat customers. But that's just one part of the equation. When Sonos came public last week, the IPO priced at 15 bucks. That's well below the deal range of 17 to 19 dollars. And that suggested there wasn't a massive appetite for the stock from the big institutional investors who'd been pitched by Sonos investment bankers for weeks. Once the stock started trading, though, wow, I got to tell you, it was just last Thursday. It performed much better than expected. Sonos opened at 16 bucks and only finished its first day of trading at 19 dollars and 91 cents. Then on Friday, it rose up to 20 dollars and 95 cents. Then this week, Sonos started giving up some of these early gains, with the stock getting clobbered on Monday, down 7%. As of today, it's come back down to $18.14. Hey, you're, you're still in the money if you bought it on the deal. So could this pullback, though, from 20 be a good entry point? Or are we looking at a logical sell-off after the stock ran up too much in the immediate aftermath of the IPO? Now we got to take a look at the fundamentals to figure this out. In 2017, Sonos grew its revenues at a 10% clip. While its gross margin, what it makes after the cost of goods sold, expanded by 531 percent, 531 basis points. That's 5.31 basis uh, percent, but 531 basis points, and that's bringing it up to nearly 46 percent. Nevertheless, the company still lost money. That's a key fact. Keep it in mind. In the first six months of Sonus's 2018 fiscal year, the six months ended on March 1st. The revenue growth actually accelerated up 18%. But on the other hand, the gross margin shrank by 195 basis points. But put it all together, and the company managed to turn a profit, even if its earnings per share shrank by 33% year over year. So far, those aren't bad numbers. But they're not exactly clean numbers either. There's a lot of hair on this one. And on Wall Street, hair is bad, like finding a hair in your soup, which is why I've been shaving the top of my head for decades, even though I, I have a full head of hair. True story. Now, Sonos also provided guidance for the quarter that ended on June 30th, and it's, a re- it's real, her suit, with, re- with revenue shrinkage down 6.6 to 7.5% year-over-year and a wider earnings loss than, than, than last year. I mean, I got to tell you, that was an eye-opener. So what do these numbers tell us? Look, until 2018, Sonos was doing great. 
company accelerating revenue growth, or ARG. Its gross margins were both strong and stable, even higher than Apple's. They got a bag of apples here. Higher than Apple's gross margins. And they're the gold standard for hardware. And for the past three years, Sonos seems to be steadily climbing toward profitability. Yet when we get to this year, the picture becomes a lot more complicated. Sales were very strong in the first half, but margins weakened dramatically. Sonos actually earned less money than they did the year before. All right, still not a deal breaker. That guidance for the upcoming quarter, though, that was downright jarring. Who the heck takes their company public when they're expecting revenue declines and larger losses? Management explained that this week this is because they launched a new product, Playbase, in the same quarter last year. So they're lapping these numbers. Uh, it means that they're up against what we call tough comparisons. That's fair enough. But we still hate to see numbers like these for a fresh-faced IPO. Making matters worse, while so- well, Sonus's revenue is now declining... That's despite a 10 to 12% increase in the number of products sold, which suggests to me that their gross margins are going lower, too. And look, based on these newest numbers, it's hard to imagine that Sonos will be able to continue generating accelerated revenue growth. What else? i got to say, it's disappointing that Sonos is not yet consistently profitable after more than 15 years in existence. If you really want to give the company the benefit of the doubt, like I talked about at the top of the show, you could argue that they'll be able to invest the proceeds of the IPO in making a better product rather than needing to reinvest revenue. But even that's kind of a stretch. Now, Sonos makes a big deal out of the fact that they have a lot of repeat business. 37% of their new product registrations last year came from existing customers. But I'm not sure if this is a good thing or a bad thing. Sure, there's a legion of devoted buyers out there. They love the brand. But what happens when those customers get saturated? How many speakers that cost hundreds of dollars can you fit in one house? How many times do you, have to, uh, you need to upgrade your sound system uh, over, say, 10 years? At once? I bet, twice? In all honesty, you know what Sonos reminds me of? Fitbit, where part of the bulk thesis was that they had this huge installed base of loyal users, an ecosystem, and the company argued these people would keep upgrading to their newer, higher-priced products. Turns out people don't really feel the need to upgrade, and Fitbit stock has been a total, unmitigated disaster. Hey, look, I got burned by that one. I'm not going to make the same mistake twice here. Now, part of Sonos' pitch is that they have an independent platform. It's a smart speaker that isn't made by Apple or Amazon or Google. Now, we know Roku has carved out a profitable niche doing just that, making itself the Switzerland of streaming video. But is Sonos really independent? Their last two major products are powered by Amazon's Alexa. Oh, and get this from the prospectus, and I quote, Our current agreement with Amazon allows Amazon to disable Alexa integration in our Sonos One and Sonos Beam products with limited notice, end quote. Hey, to me, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a hostage situation. Making matters worse, I'm wary of recommending a stock that's competing with Amazon and Google and Apple. They can crush Sonos like a bug if they feel like it. Admittedly, this is why I didn't recommend Roku a year ago, and that was a mistake. But Roku's managed to thrive because they've gotten their software installed in tons of smart TVs. They're moving away from hardware, and that's just not happening for Sonos. Roku, by the way, reported a terrific quarter this very evening. It's hard to value the stock because Sonos isn't profitable. But it's selling for less than a little less than two times last year's sales. While that may not sound too pricey, it depends on your point of comparison. It's more than twice as expensive as Fitbit or even the much reviled GoPro, which we know is a huge bust. Bottom line, you may love Sonos the product like I do, but I'm not enamored of Sonos the company. And I think Sonos the stock is way too risky. 
even as I'm committed, a committed user of their speakers. All right, much more Mad Money Head. It's the battle for dealer dominance. Find out whether CarMax or AutoNation belongs in your showroom. Then it's the dog days of summer. But I've got one red hot stock that might be worth owning. I'm eyeing IDEX Labs to see if adding to your portfolio could have you barking up the right tree. And it was only a few weeks ago that Elon Musk called out analysts for being boring. Well, no one's joining today. I'm drilling down on his takeover talk and what it means for the short sellers. So stick with Kramer. So many stocks in the same industry tend to trade together like baskets of corn, pork bellies, the orange juice futures. I love it when we see a little differentiation. One stock goes up while its competitor stock goes down. That tells me there's still a place for individual stock picking in a world that's increasingly dominated by index funds and ETFs. Hey, listen, don't mind index funds, don't mind ETFs, but you know, in our hearts, we analyze companies and stocks here. Just look at the two big car dealerships. There's CarMax. And then there's AutoNation. Since the beginning of the year, CarMax has gained 17% trouncing the performance of the S&P 500, while AutoNation has backslid. It is down 7%. Hey, come on, that's a pretty huge disparity, isn't it? I'm not saying it's a surprise. At the very beginning of the year, I told you to swap out of AutoNation and buy some CarMax. Precisely because it was the better-run company with a more consistent track record and a darn cheap stock. Hey, it's good to be right. But while I expected CarMax to outperform AutoNation, I didn't expect their stocks to travel in opposite directions. They're both big auto dealership chains with hundreds of locations. They both sell new and used vehicles. So how the heck has the stock of CarMax been able to leave the stock of AutoNation in the dust? Okay, first of all, let's be clear. Both stocks started the year looking strong. Both stocks subsequently cooled off during the big February sell-off. The difference is that in recent months, only CarMax has rebounded dramatically. So how exactly did we end up in this situation? We'll start with CarMax. Coming into the new year, Wall Street was optimistic about this one. However, by March, various analysts were cutting their sales and earnings forecasts, pointing to their channel checks and models that suggested sales in January and February were particularly weak. Naturally, the stocks kept getting clobbered. By the time CarMax reported in early April, the results were just as bad as the bears expected. Worse even. Not only did the company post a top and bottom line miss, but its used cars, its used car same store sales, key metric, were down 8%. The only bright spot, CarMax's wholesale business picked up nearly 9%. Still, it was a tough quarter. But a funny thing happened that day. After the stock opened down more than 3%, making a new 52-week low, investors suddenly decided they were willing to take a chance on CarMax because that's exactly where the stock bottomed. With the darn thing reversing course and closing up, 4.6%. 4.6%. The next day, an analyst from Buckingham even upgraded, arguing that the problems were transitory and CarMax remained the best of breed player in the group. Over the next few months, the stock continued to bounce. We started to see signs of pickup in used car sales. By the time CarMax reported again in late June, the stock had rebounded back to the January highs in the low 70s. This time, the company blew away the expectations. With a substantial top and bottom line beat, same store use uh, car sales shrank by just 2.3%. I know, not great, but bear with me. It's a major improvement versus the previous quarter. And the wholesale business continued to shine. 
On the conference call, CEO William Nash explained that they're seeing signs of recovery in the used car business. At the same time, he talked about all of the ways CarMax is embracing technology to bring in more customers. They've improved the website, doing a better job making personalized vehicle recommendations online, and using new customer relations management software. In recent years, CarMax has rolled out all sorts of new features, finance pre-approval, home delivery, online appraisals, expedited pickup tests. Now they're combining all these things into a single e-commerce experience. This is a good story. Stock spiked nearly 13% on the news, which is what caught my eye and why I wanted to do this piece. Funnily enough, because there had been so much positivity going into the quarter, a lot of analysts did something seemingly counterintuitive. They used it as an opportunity to downgrade the stock. Yeah, they wanted to take a victory lap, which is why CarMax's stock is currently down about 7% from its post-quarter highs. Still, I mean, this had a great run. Now, with AutoNation, we see almost the opposite trajectory. The House of Pain. Stock roared higher in January on the announcement of the huge savings uh, from the big tax cut, which a lot of people thought they just plowed right into buying cars. When reported in early February, the numbers were good. A big top and bottom line beat, with rising profit per vehicle and same-store sales up 3.2%. But it seemed like the market couldn't care less, and the stock sold off hard along with the rest of the market. The reason? We were already seeing signs of a slowdown in auto sales, the same thing that laid CarMax's stock low earlier this year. As the trade war rhetoric started heating up in March and April, AutoNation continued to get slammed as they sell a lot of new cars, which means they ended up beating some of the costs from President Trump's steel and aluminum tariffs. Fast forward to May 1st, AutoNation reports an OK quarter, not terrible, but not that good either. Over the next few months, the stock struggled, basically rallying whenever the trade tensions cooled and falling whenever they flare up again. Now, a week ago, AutoNation reported again, and this time the results were downright dismal. A top and bottom line miss where the strength of the used car business just wasn't enough to offset the weakness in its new car business. So how is it that CarMax appears to be thriving while AutoNation struggles? Simple. They do have a very different mix of businesses. Might as well be in different industries. CarMax is primarily a used car dealership. AutoNation, on the other hand, gets twice as much revenue from new vehicles as it does from used ones. And as it stands right now, the used car space, it is doing a heck of a lot better than the new car space. Just take a look at this key chart showing the seasonally adjusted annual rate of new car sales, or SAR car sales. After steadily climbing for nearly a decade, it peaked late last year and has been trending down, so-called peak autos. This is a straight negative for companies that primarily sell new cars, like AutoNation. But it's also a positive for used car dealers like CarMax. Why? Because with so many new cars sold in the past five to ten years, there's tons of supply for the used car companies to choose from. Not only does this help with pricing and margins, but also makes used car dealerships more attractive because they can actually sell you what you want. Hey, plus, come on. Because cars have gotten so good these days, they last so much longer, they tend to represent, I think, much better value than they used to. Then, of course, the used car sale side of things, and it got even more of a boost when the president's steel and aluminum tariffs went into effect. These tariffs make new cars more expensive, but you can't be taxed on the steel that's already in a car. You can't be taxed on a 2012 Chevy. And this is without the possibility of any tariffs on imported cars, which seems to have been averted for the moment. And I'm not the only one noticing this. Listen to Errol Hesterberg. He's the CEO of Group One Automotive, a chain of used and new car dealerships. He was on Power Lunch two weeks ago. What's working for us at the moment more is, is used cars. Uh, our used car sales in the U.S. were up 11% in the quarter, which is a number I've never seen before, and that's a same-store number. Wow. 
No wonder CarMax is wiping the floor with AutoNation. The bottom line, at the beginning of the year, I told you to avoid AutoNation stock and stick with the better-run used car vehicle-heavy CarMax. That's been a good call. And if anything, things are looking even better for CarMax here, especially since the stock remains darn cheap, selling for just 15 times next year's earnings Estimates. Bye, bye, bye. Richard in Washington. Richard. Hey, greetings, Jim from the Great Pacific Northwest. All right, Jim. I'm interested in your opinion on Ford Motor Company. The stock is trading at slightly above ten dollars. I'm retired and looking for dividend income, and Ford pays almost six percent. The analysis are all over the spectrum on their opinion of this stock. What's your take? Well, I mean, a lot of people have been talking about perhaps some risk to the dividend. And you know what? Is this where there's smoke, there's fire? How about this? How about Ford CEO come on the show and we ask directly about it? Because a lot of people are in this for uh, yield, and if there is a dividend cut, you ain't got the yield. And I have to hear it from the horse's mouth. It's not enough just to cash flow analysis. All right, used cars are faring much better than new cars, and that's why I'd stick with the stock of CarMax over the one of AutoNation. Much more, man, bunny head. Did you know today is National Cat Day? How am I celebrating? By having the CEO of one of the top animal health places and hottest performers in this market. Join me on set. And then, don't miss, I'm telling you, this guy is money. Don't, he's the exclusive with IDEX Labs. Then, it's not just our president that makes headlines when he tweets. Elon Musk is making waves after he's looking to take the company private. I'll tell you what to make of the move. Hey, SDC, wake up. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. Now and then you'll stumble onto an incredible long-term theme that turns out to be even better than you could possibly ever imagine. And that's how I feel about the humanization of pets. Now, I've been talking about this for years. These days, we spend a ludicrous amount of money on our companion animals. We let them sleep in our beds. We set up security cameras inside our home systems just so we can watch them while we're at work. We often feed them better food than I feed ourselves. For many Americans, cats and dogs might as well be additional members of the family, including this one. And that's especially true when it comes to health care. After all, can you really put a price tag on a canine life? I mean, that's exactly what you do at a pet store, but you get the idea. Veterinary medicine has become a huge growth business, which brings me to IDEX, the number one maker of diagnostic systems for animals, particularly pets, although they also have some uh, livestock exposure. Here's a longtime Kramer fable, the stock that's given us a monster 57% gain just this year alone. Some of that's because because IDEX keeps reporting amazing quarters like they just last week when they delivered a six cent earnings beat off a buck 17 basis, higher than expected revenue, a 14 percent year over year. Even better management raised their full year guidance. And you got to hear about the organic growth here. These results were so good that we got to take a fresh look at the story. So let's check in with John Ayers. He's the chairman, president and CEO of IDEX Laboratories. Hear more about the quarter and where his company's headed. Mr. Welcome back to Mad Money. Good to see you, sir. Great to see you. All right. Now we got to get right to it. Talk to me about fecal matter. You know, uh, it's an important test for, uh, for dogs and cats. And so it's part of now our pro- a proprietary preventative care panel that goes out to the reference lab. We see preventative care, including blood work, as one of the major long-term growth drivers. You know, Jim, an adult, healthy dog, when you run blood work, one in seven chances you're going to find significant underlying disease. 
Because pets don't, they, they don't tell you how they feel. That's yeah, the adults, no. not even the seniors or the geriatrics, right. which are higher numbers. So uh, that's, uh, that's an important part, uh, and we really see it as a big growth driver in our reference well, lab. Well, the reason I start with that, not just to be humorous, but, you know, you come on and talked about liquid gold. And this quarter was dominated by talking on the conference call about fecal matter. You have found inventive ways to figure out how these cats and dogs feel. Yeah, well, you know, uh, they can't tell you how they feel. No. And so the diagnostics is sort of the voice of the pet. And what our innovation does is it expands their vocabulary so they can tell us more about their health status. Now, when we talk about these, uh, what you can do, a lot of what you're doing is actually selling equipment to vets. This veterinary business must be as, as big a growth business as the pet, as the number of animals that we're having in our homes to begin with. It's, uh, you know, the, the great thing about, some people say their, their dog gets better health care than, than, than they themselves get because you can go in in a 20 or 30 minute appointment, uh, have the exam, have the blood work run, see what the results of the blood work, are there any issues, talk about how to address those issues, all within a 30 minute exam. Yeah. This is what our diagnostic equipment is able to uh, empower the practice. And of course, since the pet owner is paying, it's really nice to have all that information right when you're having the conversation. Well, that's what brings me to the key issue, pet owners paying. This is a cash business, which is why the veterinary business is so good, which is why I imagine you do a lot of work gathering a lot of customers. I read on the conference call that you're using salesforce.com. Could you tell our viewers what that has done for your business? Well, we find uh, this is a, a relationship business, and we have a really important field sales force. We have close to 500 uh, field-based representatives. are adding people, so business is really great. Yeah, we're adding 13% domestically and 15% internationally uh, just in the next six months. We find that the more we call on customers, the faster they grow with IDEX Diagnostics, our recurring revenue. And so what Salesforce.com, when we plug in all of our proprietary information, is it tells our sales professional the three key questions. Where do I go? Who do I talk to? What do I say? And this really grows. The productivity of having that information at their fingertips is, is really profound. And we're learning new ways about how to leverage that technology combined with our data to improve the productivity, let alone the feet on the street of our sales force, thus growing the, uh, the recurring revenue, the well, organic growth you talk about. The organic growth is among the highest of any company I follow. Now, uh, Zoetis recently reported a fantastic quarter where they are talking about all sorts of new drugs they've got in their pipeline. Is that something that says to me uh, it's going to be great for IDEX in the future? Well, you know, the, the great thing is that, of course, pet spending is a big growth area. As you've mentioned, healthcare is a growing part of pet spending. Right. Diagnostics is the fastest growing part of pet health care. And of course, that's where we are the leader. And we've built that leadership over the last couple of decades by spending 80% of the industry R&D in diagnostics and software, our, our competencies. So yeah, I think it's a pretty attractive area. Okay, so how about some of the, uh, the, the uh, look, we have to ask about livestock because there's not been any, thank heavens, flu or anything that uh, it, it, it seems to be a, a tremor in the industry, but it's still a good business, not just not fast as companion. Yeah, no, it's 8% of our business. It's a good business. We're the, we're the world leader. It leverages the same diagnostic technology as uh, is the healthcare, you know, we're, we're advancing uh, uh, healthcare in the, in the livestock, but really the, the big business force, 85% of our 
of our revenues is the right. companion animal. And then the last thing is that I thought that uh, there's some statistics about Europe. It looks like that we that they rival us in terms of humanization of pets. Well, they're on their way. Yeah. But it's Germany. amazing. Germany, it's a big market for us. Uh, we're doing a 15% expansion of our sales organization outside the U.S. But what's interesting, Jim, is international only has a quarter of the standard of care of the U.S. They love their, people love their pets yeah. everywhere. It would take 25 years of 10% growth internationally to catch up to where we are in the standard of the care of the U.S. So we see international, and we're, we're direct in, in, in all major markets. I'm so glad you mentioned that, because sometimes when you see that kind of growth in Salesforce, you say, I hope they have the customers. Clearly, it's another 10 years for IDEX. This is a Jonathan Ayers, the chairman, president, and CEO of IDEX Laboratories. And after this, he and I are both going to celebrate International Cat Day, which means take your cat to the vet. They have lunch back in the break. Now and then you'll stumble onto an incredible long-term theme that turns out to be even better than you can possibly ever imagine. And that's how I feel about the humanization of pets. Now, I've been talking about this for years. These days, we spend a ludicrous amount of money on our companion animals. We let them sleep in our beds. We set up security cameras inside our home systems just so we can watch them while we're at work. We often feed them better food than I feed ourselves. For many Americans, cats and dogs might as well be additional members of the family, including this one. And that's especially true when it comes to health care. After all, can you really put a price tag on a canine life? I mean, that's exactly what you do at a pet store, but you get the idea. Veterinary medicine has become a huge growth business, which brings me to IDEX, the number one maker of diagnostic systems for animals, particularly pets, although they also have some uh, livestock exposure. Here's a longtime Kramer fable. The stock that's given us a monster 57% gain just this year alone. Some of that's because IDEX keeps reporting amazing quarters. Like they just, last week, when they delivered a six cent earnings beat off a buck 17 basis, higher than expected revenue, a 14% year over year. Even better management raised their full year guidance, and you gotta hear about the organic growth here. These results were so good that we gotta take a fresh look at the story. So let's check in with John Ayers. He's the chairman, president, and CEO of IDEX Laboratories. Hear more about the quarter and where his company's headed. Mr. welcome back to Mad Money. Good to see you, sir. Great to see you. All right, now we gotta get right to it. Talk to me about fecal matter. You know, uh, it's an important test for, uh, for dogs and cats. And so it's part of now our pro a proprietary preventative care panel that goes out to the reference lab. We see preventative care, including blood work, as one of the major long-term growth drivers. You know, Jim, an adult, healthy dog, when you run blood work, one in seven chances you're going to find significant underlying disease. Because pets don't, they, they don't tell you how they feel. That's yeah, the adults, not even the seniors or the geriatrics, right. which are higher numbers. So uh, that's, a, that's an important part, uh, and we really see it as a big growth driver in our reference well, lab. The reason I start with that, not just be humorous, but you know, you come on and talked about liquid gold. And this quarter was dominated by talking on the conference call about fecal matter. You have found inventive ways to figure out how these cats and dogs feel. Yeah, well, you know, uh, they can't tell you how they feel. No. And so the diagnostics is sort of the voice of the pet. And what our innovation does is it expands their vocabulary so they can tell us more about their health status. Now, when we talk about these, uh, what you can do, a lot of what you're doing is actually selling equipment to vets. This veterinary business must be as, as big a growth business as the pet, as the number of animals that we're having in our homes to begin with. It's, uh, you know, the, the great thing about, some people say their, their dog gets better health care than, than, than they themselves get because you can go in in a 20 or 30 minute appointment, 
uh, have the exam, have the blood work run, see what the results of the blood work, are there any issues, talk about how to address those issues, all within a 30-minute exam. Yeah. This is what our diagnostic equipment is able to uh, empower the practice. And of course, since the pet owner is paying, it's really nice to have all that information right when you're having the conversation. Well, that's what brings me to the key issue, pet owner's paying. This is a cash business, which is why the veterinary business is so good, which is why I imagine you do a lot of work gathering a lot of customers. I read on the conference call that you're using salesforce.com. Could you tell our viewers what that has done for your business? Well, we find uh, this is a, a relationship business, and we have a really important field sales force. We have close to 500 uh, field-based representatives. adding people, so business is really great. Yeah, we're adding 13% domestically and 15% internationally uh, just in the next six months. We find that the more we call on customers, the faster they grow with IDEX Diagnostics, our recurring revenue. And so what Salesforce.com, when we plug in all of our proprietary information, is it tells our sales professional the three key questions. Where do I go? Who do I talk to? What do I say? And this really grows. The productivity of having that information at their fingertips is, is really profound. And we're learning new ways about how to leverage that technology combined with our data to improve the productivity, let alone the feet on the street of our sales force, thus growing the, uh, the recurring revenue, the well, organic growth you talk about. The organic growth is among the highest of any company I follow. Now, uh, Zoetis recently reported a fantastic quarter where they are talking about all sorts of new drugs they've got in their pipeline. Is that something that says to me uh, it's going to be great for IDEX in the future? Well, you know, the, the great thing is that, of course, pet spending is a big growth area. As you've mentioned, healthcare is a growing part of pet spending. Diagnostics is the fastest growing part of pet health care. And of course, that's where we're the leader. And we've built that leadership over the last couple of decades by spending 80% of the industry R&D in diagnostics and software, our, our competencies. So yeah, I think it's a pretty attractive area. Okay, so how about some of the, uh, the, the uh, look, we have to ask about livestock because there's not been any, thank heavens, flu or anything that uh, it, it seems to be a, a tremor in the industry, but it's still good business, not just not fast as companion. Yeah, no, it's 8% of our business. It's a good business. We're the, we're the world leader. It leverages the same diagnostic technology as, uh, as the healthcare. You know, we're, we're advancing uh, uh, healthcare in the, in the livestock, but really the, the big business force, 85% of our of our revenues is the right. companion animal. And then the last thing is that I thought that uh, there's some statistics about Europe. It looks like that we that they rival us in terms of humanization of pets. Well, they're on their way. Yeah, but it's Germany. amazing. Germany, it's a big market for us. Uh, we're doing a 15% expansion of our sales organization outside the U.S. But what's interesting, Jim, is international only has a quarter of the standard of care of the U.S. They love their people love their pets yeah. everywhere. It would take 25 years of 10% growth internationally to catch up to where we are in the standard of the care of the U.S. So we see international, and we're, we're direct in, in, in all major markets. I'm so glad you mentioned that because sometimes when you see that kind of growth in Salesforce, you say, I hope they have the customers. Clearly, it's another 10 years for IDEX. This is a Jonathan Ayers, the chairman, president, and CEO of IDEX Laboratories. And after this, he and I are both going to celebrate International Cat Day, which means take your cat to the vet. They have money back in the break. There are a lot of brilliant short sellers out there, yet they all tend to make the same mistakes.
You can be the most rigorous person on earth. You can have a superhuman ability to smell a rat or know when a company's on thin ice with the government. But there are four fundamental problems that make shorting stocks especially dangerous. Problems that are bedeviling these professional pessimists as they confront perhaps the greatest shortbuster in modern memory, as they confront Elon Musk. Yesterday, when Musk tweeted that he had the financing lined up to take Tesla private at $420 a share, he gutted the short sellers. I mean, just guillotined them. And I think this is a great example of why it's such a, so tough to bet against individual companies. Even if you think this is all smoke and mirrors, like my partner David Favor suggested this morning, it's still brutal for the shorts. First, Musk has every right to say that he has a potential $420 per share takeover bid lined up, provided that he doesn't sell stock into the hype. Why not? The SEC doesn't specifically say you can't ponder what a company's worth or whether the company might get a bid. In fact, Twitter's absolutely, by the way, the place to disseminate this possibility. I'm sure that Musk has been approached from time to time, maybe even by the Saudi Public Investment Fund that's reportedly taken a 3 to 5% stake in Tesla. And this was not a fundraise. They bought the stock in the open market. Maybe the Saudis mentioned that Musk should take it private. Who knows? But again, as long as there's no dump with the pump, it's arguably a legitimate thing to say, although Dow Jones is reporting that the SEC has said to have made inquiries to Tesla about this matter. Which brings me to point two. Unless the SEC or justice gets involved in a serious way, it doesn't even matter if Musk's tweet was illegal, wrong, or inappropriate. This is something that Bill Ackman learned the hard way when he publicly shorted Herbalife. When you read When the Wolves Bite by my buddy Scott Wapner, you'll see that Ackman, in desperation, did everything he could to get any federal agency to crack down on Herbalife and put it out of business because of what he saw as some really atrocious business practices. In the end, Ackman lost a fortune because no agency took the bite. So even if the SEC took the bait, so even if the SEC uh, looks like into Musk's tweet, I don't think that it would matter much to the stock. I mean, look, it's not like the SEC, like the college tournament area, looking into it. And the SEC's got teeth. But it's just not going to hurt the stock that much. And that's because of point three. Short sellers need normal sellers to come out to knock a stock down. Who in his right mind is going to sell Tesla if there's even the possibility of a leveraged buyout? How do we know that this isn't a reprise of Keurig Green Mountain, which went private after the very smart David Einhorn suggested that his stock was worth dramatically less than it was selling for? Hey, don't I know it. I had been championing Keurig when Einhorn went to work on it. He cited me as part of the problem. Turns out I was part of the solution. Keurig got a bid from JB Holdings that was 72% higher than where it had been trading. Keurig was what we call a terminal short. It's a short seller's worst nightmare. Finally, sure, maybe Tesla does deserve to be dramatically lower. Maybe the market's dead wrong and the whole thing's a house of cards. But remember what the late, great economist John Maynard Keynes had to say about these situations. The market can afford to remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. And more to the point, in the long run, we're all dead. I think Elon Musk can keep the balls in the air longer than the shorts can say stay short. He, he could have told that so, the Saudis that he'd sell them $2 billion in stock right from the company if he wanted to, right? Then what? If he turned them down, it shows that Tesla might be doing a heck of a lot better than the shorts think it is. Who doesn't need $2 billion? Elon Musk didn't. Musk plays hardball. I remember when I met him. And I challenged him on the prospect of something he had pro- proposed. He's saying that there could be a giant solar field 
in northern Colorado that could power the whole country. I thought it seemed fanciful. His response was simple. He said there was a 50% chance that I don't even exist, that I was just a simulation. It was brutal. It was funny. And I'm sure the 20 people around the table where he, where he cut me into pieces would each give him a monster check. Believe me, it wouldn't have been a problem just for that one ride post. You got to understand, Elon Musk is a weird mix of Thomas Edison, David Blaine, and the Punisher. He's a showman, a visionary, and he's ruthless. I wouldn't recommend Tesla up here, but you know what? You'd be crazy to short it. Let's talk good and bad. First good, Keith Block becomes co-CEO of Salesforce Market. Likes it. Why? Because as great as Mark Benioff is, it's better to have another guy working with him. Less key man risk. And then the bad is Snap. I mean, I got to tell you, the daily average users decline. Are you kidding me? Sure, engagement is up. But DAUs is the lifeblood metric. And without a rise in those, and I got to tell you, you do not have a great future. And I don't think the future is that great for I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. And I promise to try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.